Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. One of the largest drivers of our economy and actually a good barometer of that economy is home sales and building. A perfect example is the Great Recession nine years ago that was brought on in part by mistakes made in mortgages and loans. Even though the recovery from that recession has been sluggish in some areas, home sales have made a comeback. Almost five and a half million existing homes were sold last year and housing starts had their strongest year in a decade. Those are the national numbers. What about here in the mid-state, here in central Pennsylvania, as far as home sales, housing starts, and uh, well, really it talks about uh, employment and inco- the economy as well. We have a full house today joining us to talk about this. Joining us is Greg Rothman, president and CEO of RSA, RSR Realtors, Angela Shiflett, who is residential mortgage sales manager, and Michael Paduzzi, executive vice president and chief financial officer with MidPen Bank, and Daniel Durden, CEO of the Pennsylvania Builders Association. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. If you have a question or comment about home sales, housing, about uh, starting to, to, to build a house, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, I'm going to start with a broad question. And Greg Rothman, and do you mind me calling you Representative Rothman because uh, you've taken time <laughs> off from uh, the State House of Representatives. You can call me Greg. I can call you Greg. Okay. Greg. <laughs> How do home sales look during uh, 2017? Yeah, so it's it, I mean, we, we've got numbers back from 2016. 2016 ended up being the best year in the history of real estate in central Pennsylvania. Uh, it was We sold over 10,300 units, single-family units, um, which ca- exceeded 2006, which up until that point was the only time we ever sold more than 10,000 units. The low, so you know, was in... 2011, as you talked about, when the when the Great Recession was taking place, there were only 6,600 houses sold. We also saw the days on the market drop from 101 days to 72 days, which is also an indicator of what's going on in the market. And we saw appreciation of about 8%, which is uh, the most we've seen in at least since 2005. So uh, the, the residential real estate market in central Pennsylvania was great in 2016, and we anticipate it's going to be even better in 2017. Okay. So when you say central Pennsylvania, what what encompasses? Yeah, the, it's the greater Harrisburg market. So okay. it's all of Cumberland, all of Dauphin, all of Perry, uh, northern York, uh, and and uh, maybe a little bit of Lebanon. So basically your listener, your, your where your listeners are. Well, we have about... 12 more counties than that. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> no, but what I will say is that uh, even though, uh, you know, that's you're, you're looking specifically at that area, for the most part, what you said probably is, is true in all of the areas throughout our listening area. Now, there are some rural counties, and we'll talk about that, uh, some rural areas that uh, did not ex- experience that kind of gain like that, but uh, we'll talk about that throughout. All right, so let's talk about building. Um, Daniel Durden, who is with the Pennsylvania Builders Association, what about housing starts? Well, we were always hopeful in a case like this past year where things have been so successful in residential sales that there'll be what we call a trickle up. So clearly all those people who are buying homes, some of them have to find new homes for themselves as they sell. And uh, we look for about 60% of the people selling to be buying new homes. As the market saturates uh, for existing homes that creates more opportunities we hope for our members to build new homes uh, single family primarily and right now that looks great in the immediate central pennsylvania market as you alluded to when you get a little further outside the job hubs like harrisburg um, it does not look quite as optimistic 
for those who are looking to buy, whether it's existing or brand new homes, there's not as much opportunity, and uh, we're not seeing as much action out there. But uh, as as Greg referred to, in the local market, things are as dynamic now as they have been in some time. When you say not as much resources, or uh, you're talking about jobs, you're talking about income. Absolutely. It, Home buying today, even more than it has been in the past, is dependent upon the buyer having enough down payment. They're going to have to meet the credit requirements that are fortunately more strict than they were right prior to the recession. Uh, in addition to that, though, with the ever-increasing cost of materials, of the things that go into a home, of regulatory costs that in the creation of a home, the base price of even the simplest home is higher than it once was. So. As we're creating new housing stock, it's pricing the the lower end, the, the first-time buyer, more and more out of the market beyond the, the ability of the lender, beyond the ability of the builder to try to accommodate and put them in that home. Uh, Greg, what was the average price of a home that was sold? Uh, 195000 In central Pennsylvania. Yeah. And That's higher than the state average, isn't it? Higher than the state average, and it's about a... Uh, well, about an 8.2% increase over last year. But and it's, it's also, the highest ever. But Pennsylvania, if I look at the prices, I mean, compared to, well, well, California, you can't even compare. But like D.C. area, well, yeah, things just, like yeah. that. I mean, we, we are so affordable compared to areas like that. We really are. And and, and new home construction's probably maybe $100,000 higher than that, right? I mean, just under 300000 is the average. And and a lot goes into the increased pricing. I mean, the, the, the costs of development have gone through the roof. So, I mean, even more so than the materials, just the entitlement costs. And a lot of that has to do with regulations, and um, it makes it harder and harder for a first-time home buyer or even a mid-income home buyer to buy a new house. So, right. We're going to talk about regulations, who's buying, that kind of things. Let me, let me turn to our our bankers now, uh, Midpen Bank. Uh, Michael Paduzzi, uh, you know, we've heard some optimism here with you know, a couple of reasons for concern. What about on the banking front? I think that optimism is well-founded. I think if you look at, for instance, our results from last year, we had our best year ever. And even on the mortgage side, our mortgage income and our mortgage production was as strong as it's ever been, almost twice as what it had been the year before, and certainly much stronger than it had been if we look a few years back. Mm -hmm. Certainly, with our footprint being heavily concentrated in the same Cumberland County, Dauphin County, and the, the greater area, we've seen a lot of benefit from that. And certainly the interest rates being really, even still today where they are at historical lows, have clearly helped us. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that's important is to have a lot of folks on the front line in contact with the customers and get a lot of people in. Uh, as Dan said, there's a lot more challenges. And so in order to meet those challenges, you have to have good relationships and get people in and allow them to really evaluate their options and give them a lot of different things to look at as far as what their their, their uh, options are for buying or for potentially uh, moving up. Mm -hmm. It's not always suitable for everybody. All four of you, I'm sure, pay close attention to the state of the economy because your businesses, are, you know, there's direct impact on, on the, the business that you do. But banks maybe more so than others because you're looking at more than just mortgages, home sales. You're looking at a lot of different areas. So with this reason for optimism, with this positive outlook on home sales and housing starts, what do you attribute it to? Well, I think there's a, a number of factors. I think, again, there was such a downturn after the Great Recession. There was a lot of stock available. Things have worked through, so 
development might have slowed four or five years ago, it's really picking up again. Not only do we do the the consumer and the home side, but we do with a lot of uh, commercial developers and commercial builders, and clearly their activity and volume is up, and there's a lot of optimism as far as that is All concerned. Right, when you say clearly, that's clear to you, but it's, uh, <laughs> to our audience, <laughs> what about it? Well, I, I think they're seeing it. I think if they look around and they see that there's a lot of developments, there's much fewer for sale signs in their neighborhoods. Um, Angela here just recently had herself uh, uh, involved in a home transaction, Angela. And if you just speak to that, I think it you would mean, really... You bought a house yourself? I'm in the process of oh, buying okay. selling right now. Yes. So in the mortgage, the head of mortgages at MidPen Bank buys a house. What do you look for? Well, you're certainly looking for the best opportunity that's available to you. Um, the, the, the market where I was specifically looking at inventory is a little bit low. Um, so you want to take your time, make sure that you're looking at different homes that meet your you know, financial restraints or what's available to you for down payment. But um, in our specific situation, I was telling Mike, the house that we bought was on the market for two days. And when I really? sold my house, it was on the market for two days. Uh, that, okay, now that's just that's just a dream. So, well, there, <laughs> yeah. I speak this a little bit, but there's a shortness of inventory in many of these markets right now. So you have good buyers who are looking maybe to to up, you know upgrade and and move into a, a bigger house that are just looking for something very specific, and and um, I think. The inventory is a... It definitely is a supply issue. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about that because I, I mentioned uh, in one of the promos that I did for the show today that uh, nationally, that, uh, you know, last year was a record-setting year for, maybe not a record-setter, but close to it. As you said, Greg, 2006 was when, and it, it, that wasn't just here in central Pennsylvania, that was across the country. But last year came close to it, uh, maybe a few... Uh, 100,000 units, something like that. But in December, sales were down like 2.8%. And, uh, you know, there were some people, who, whenever they see something like that, it's like, oh, no, that yeah, means, I, that's I, not good for 2017. I urge people, especially in this business, to not worry about month over month. I mean, we're going to have a really good January because we haven't had any snow. But last year, we had a really bad February because we spent the first week digging out of right, that 30-inch right. snowstorm at the end of January. So month over month doesn't mean anything to, to me. Year over year means something to me. But real estate's a cycle. And if, if Angela's buying last month, she's going to be settling next month, and she's not going to be looking for another house. I mean, that's it, – it's just a, the, the cycle goes year over year. But, you know, I think what's driving this market is – Two things. Number one, confidence, where someone who already has a house, like Angela says, you know what? We can buy a bigger house. I'm assuming you bought a bigger house or a higher-priced house. We can do that because we, we, we have confidence in the economy. And the other is these Generation Y, and you may be Generation Y, too. And anyone born in the 1980s and 90s, those are the ones that we call them sometimes pejoratively the millennials were sitting out of the market. And they sat out the market because they saw what happened in 2009, 10, 11, maybe to their parents or their friends' parents. And they started buying in 2016. And if they buy in 2017, you are going to see the market go crazy because okay. they're now in their 30s. They have jobs and steady income and maybe some savings and good credit uh, because they learned the lessons from their parents and grandparents. And 
Um, that's that's who's driving the market. So the moving out of mom and dad's house. Out of the basements, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's, I mean, Nowadays, really, that's, there are a lot of – yeah. I mean, I'm not joking about that nope. because we yeah. know that there are a lot of young people, even young couples, that have had to stay close to parents just because they couldn't afford those kind of things with uh, – I've even talked to parents who moved in with their kids. It's going right? to be the other way around, around now, too, yeah, so. yeah. But getting back to de- December, because these are a couple things um, – I anticipate that you're not going to say that these are obstacles that are so big that people can't overcome them. But uh, that downturn of uh, 2.8%, one of the reasons given was that the Federal Reserve raised the prime rate and that mortgage rates went up. Now, a lot of people tried to lock in their their lower rate in November before uh, December. Now, usually used to be when you heard about a mortgage rate going up it was like oh no but we're talking about an interest rate that went up to four point what up to 4.25 and it's come back down a little bit but only not more than 4.25 the day after the election anybody in the mortgage business probably had a rough day that day they went from 3.375 in the morning and by the time we closed we were at 375 3.875 it was that big of an increase in hours so for the people that were able to lock in those interest rates that's great for the people that weren't they hear about these low interest rates but they do have to realize 4%, 3.875, 4.25, 4%, 3.875, you're all still in that in that area. It's not going to impact you quite as much as you think that it might, especially on a 30-year loan for a payment. Well, give me an idea, though, uh, because, you know, a full point is, is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Give me an idea. For those out there listening who may not know, maybe they haven't uh, purchased a house in a while. I mean, I think back my our first house, uh, in the mid-80s, we had 7.5%, and we thought that was a great rate because at that time, that was low. I, I remember when I started in real estate in 1989, uh, $8.41 per thousand was your your rate for a 9% interest. And I memorized that. So if you said, hey, I'm going to buy a $100,000 house, I could say, well, that's $841 a month. And I remember when the rates went to 10%, and I went into my father's office, who had been in business since the 60s, and slumped down in his chair and said, how am I ever going to sell a house at 10% interest rates? And he said, I sold them at 20%. Get back out there. Right. That's right. I mean, in the late 70s, in the late 70s, I mean, a lot of people forget about that. Uh, At the end of the Carter administration, when interest rates went so high. 18%. I don't know. Maybe not Angela, but the rest of us are probably old enough to remember that. But uh, so, Angela, what does that mean, that, that percentage point? Uh, it, it does actually mean, you know, obviously your principal and interest payment is going to be is going to be higher. It depends on your loan amount and your price of your home, of course. Um, but the interest rate isn't the only key factor there, that one point. You also have to take into consideration the fees that could come along as far as mortgage insurance and things like that. That's not only the interest rate that people should get hung up on. Um, it Just because you have a higher interest rate, your payment still could be lower because of the different mortgage insurance fees at FHA or, you know, programs that when you're not putting 20% down. So although it does impact it, it's not going to be the only deciding factor on what what your payment ends up being at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, In addition to that, you were going back and talking about, you know, the millennials who are coming out of their parents' basements. There's a lot of great opportunity right now. They're the, the... People that are employed and out there and looking for homes, they might have very good income, but they don't have a lot of cash. There's a lot of loan programs that have been coming out and some things have been loosening up a little bit that makes them able to purchase a home now with very little money down. So that's been helpful for the you know people that 
maybe not be great savers, um, maybe spend a little bit too much, but they're good credit, good income. They're able to obtain a home there more now so many, than ever. There are so many things we can talk about here, and we're going to right after the break. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about housing, home sales, home building here in uh, central Pennsylvania, really across the state, across the country. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalk, WITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Our guest today, Daniel Durden, CEO of the Pennsylvania Builders Association, Michael Baduzzi, who is Executive Vice President, Chief Financial Officer, and Angela Shiflett, Residential Mortgage Sales Manager with MidPen Bank, and Greg Rothman, President and CEO of RSR Realtors. Again, 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call. All right, we talked about uh, the increase in mortgage rates, which are really not that substantial. But what about inventory? And Greg, let me talk to you about this. Uh, Yes, because there were a lot of or have been a lot of homes uh, that have been sold, inventory has been a little bit tight, uh, not only here in central Pennsylvania, but across the country. What does that mean for home buyers and home sellers? Well, yeah, so it's a basic economic principle, the supply and demand. Uh, But the, the reason is because we did have in 2009, 10, 11, development stop, and, and developers stopped doing development. And so now they're trying to catch up, and the, the entitlement process from the time you find a raw piece of land and turn it into finished lots, not only has the price gone up, but the timings, it's gotten a lot more difficult. A lot of it has to do with stormwater management and other regulatory issues where uh, it, it, it's more difficult to develop real estate, which then raises the costs and also uh, hurts the supply. So we need to loosen some of those regulations to make it easier for developers to build houses, uh, and including, we were just talking during the break, having more density. So you're building smaller houses on smaller lots, and, and which lowers the price for everybody and makes affordable housing available. We'll talk about the, some of those things, but Dan, let me, you know, Greg just said that uh, developers weren't developing as much. Why? Well, there's two features. The financing window for development is far longer than the, the building of a single home. Right. Mm-hmm. So as financing capital markets dried up, developers left the market. There was no demand for new homes. So when you're looking at a window, oftentimes for development, you're looking at 10, 12 years in advance. And when you see the daunting prospect of local municipalities not making any of the uh, permitting and entitling restrictions any easier to work with for the prospect of losing money 10 years down the road, it's an easy invitation for a developer to say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to throw my money at risk. So a lot of those people either left the market, sat on the sidelines. We're seeing a lot of them come back. But the problem is the pig can never catch up and get through the python, so to speak. So there's always playing a game of catch up economically. And then as the uh, regulatory burden on that becomes ever more challenging, it makes it difficult. Uh, best recent um, studies on this have shown that 24% of the cost of a new home is direct and indirect cost of regulation. So you figure if it's a $200,000 purchase, $50,000 of, of your cost is paying for the regulatory burden to get your home to market. 
Well, when you compare that to where homes might have been once upon a time, it makes it very difficult to price competitively and to, we are referring earlier to millennials or, or to others who may have less cash. It's hard to get in the marketplace. You know, I, again, as I'm reading about uh, about this, one of the things I heard described is, or one of the descriptions was that builders have been cautious. And what you just said, it sounds like those are the reasons that uh, the builders have been cautious. Since since there's a sense of uh, optimism, the economy is coming back. Uh, for the first time in years, actually, incomes have risen a little bit here in the last year or so. Uh, do you think that we will see more home starts? I do, but remember, we have a different feature that's kind of unrelated to that, that that's a drag on the market, particularly with millennials, Gen X buyers. We have a, a group of people, let's say 21 to 35, who have a historically high levels of student debt. So if you owe thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, you're married to somebody who brings the same level of debt to the marriage, and you're looking to put a down payment on a house, even with a friendly program like FHA, where you only need 3.5% down, where do you find that money? You have to have two pretty good jobs to maintain your student loan payments and save a little bit for a down payment on the house. You know, you, you bring that up, and we have a caller on the line who wants to address that exact topic. Uh, I believe it's Malik from Mechanicsburg. Is it Malik? Yes, it's Malik. All right, Malik. Uh, go ahead. You uh, He led right into your question, I think. <laughs> yes, he did. So we are a first home buyer right now in the market, and we just finalized the home purchase in Mechanicsburg, and hopefully we'll get our home in April this year. But we both have student debt. And when we are looking out for our houses in the market, we realize that we are not the only ones. Probably there are more people right now settling for a house which is not so desirable with the hope that maybe in the future, not long run, maybe three or four years, we want to sell this house and buy a bigger one. So where do you see the market is heading from here onwards? Mm. All right. Thank you very much for your call. But, you know, Dan, he's you know, just backing up what you said earlier this week. We did a show on uh, student loans and that age group. Now, one thing I'm curious about, and all of you can answer this question, but you've talked a lot about first time home buyers. Are first time home buyers those who drive the market? Yeah, well, I, I can answer in, in our market, it was 60, 68 percent of the sales were first time home buyers. In the last year, so they clearly are driving the market. Close to seventy percent of them are. What do you see with the bank? Absolutely, we see a lot of first-time home buyers coming in. Um, there's been some additional outlets with you know other investors through PHFA that offers great first-time home buyer programs. Um, there's a few out there that are really helpful, but yeah, that's low down payment, lower interest rates, all kinds of different options with and without mortgage insurance that allow you to really get that first time home buyer the best loan for them. So there are a lot of programs. Yes. You know, we, we kind of have to go back to 2008 to 2009 because that was the, that Great Recession was such a huge event, if you want to describe it as, a, as an event. <coughs> Um, credit was tight after that. And, you know, part of the reason that we did have that recession is that there were some shaky loans that were handed out. What about now? Has credit loosened up now? Because I imagine that there are a lot of young people, first-time home buyers, who do have those student loans, and the, their credit may not be the best. What about that? There's several loan programs out there. I mean, you can get down as low as 620 for a credit score and obtain 
a first-time homebuyer program, you can get down to 580 with FHA. Um, very difficult, but it's available. Um, but with the with the credit, um, that's not always the driving force either. The first-time homebuyer programs that we have available you sometimes get a better interest rate based on your credit scores. A lot of the first-time homebuyer programs that are available don't size you up that way. They are wanting to help you find your first home, and you're going to get the same interest rate whether you have a 620 or an 800. Now, that's something that's more specific just for those um, low to moderate income households, you know, things like that. Um, when you're getting into your other conventional types of programs, you are going to be kind of weighed based on what your credit history is. But things tightened up, and then they loosened up. We had Quality Mortgage come down through uh, January of a couple years ago where they wanted your debt to income not to be anything over 43. They've recently... Give you, explain that a little bit. Yep. So what we do is we look at your, your income, and you look at your total debts, including student <laughs> loans, even if they're deferred. Depending on the type of loan, we're told how we have to calculate that payment. All of that t- gets taken into consideration, including your new house debt. So they want all of that total debt not to exceed 43% of your income. They've loosened that up a little bit. We now can go up to 45. And FHA just recently um, had gone up to 50 and are now even going over the idea of as long as you get an automated approval through this it's a it's a system that looks at your entire profile it's looking at your employment history it's looking if you've purchased a home before it's looking at your credit um, it's looking at all of that and they're even saying that they could loosen that up and as long as it says you're approved it's not even going to go by your debts versus right. your income anymore that's good for home buyers but, but raises flags yes. about, the, you know, we go back to the recession about some loans that were handed out. I mean, is that necessarily a good thing? I, that particular point I have some concerns about. I think there's plenty of loans that are available out there. And, you know, buying a home isn't anything small. And if you get in over your head, it is something that haunts you for a very long time from being able to be a home buyer again. So I don't think that we need to loosen things up quite that much. That's just my opinion. But I, I think that the, the, the rules and the guidelines that are in place right now, I would say, are making the, the good home buyers, um, giving them good loans, great loan options. I don't think that we should go back to the no income, no asset type of days. I think that's how things got messed up quite a bit. But it's, it's hard right now for um, self-employed people, most of all to be able to get a loan with some of the new rules and guidelines, but there's plenty of opportunity out there for everyone, and that's why you get with a mortgage lender. Even if you're not ready to buy now, they can help you work on your credit, you know, tell you to get a credit card and how to use it, you know, appropriately and and, and go from there. Michael, when, and and I kind of go back to you for the big picture here uh, as a CFO of, of MidPen, but when you hear about, uh, and you know, we've heard a caller and we heard Dan talking about it, about young people who are especially, you know, their, their budgets are really tight because of student loans and maybe some other factors. Is that a concern for you? Oh, well, it is. And I have children that are home buying age, and, and so it's a concern for me. Uh, I think the important thing is really what Angela said. Um, to, to get in, a lot of times they're fearful and they've never really had an evaluation of what they can afford and what their, their their strengths and weaknesses are. And so they just hear the news, they hear things are bad, they know they have student debt and they think, I can't afford these things, I can't get in these programs. 
there's no more thorough analysis than a home mortgage application. So if you tell me in, about it, yeah, uh, I, mean, I mean, how many papers do you have to sign nowadays? Well, especially with the Dodd Frank regulations that were put in after the Great Recession, <laughs> really? there is a number, and so we're really trying to to get that work done. There's some optimism that there will be some layback on that in terms of the new administration, but certainly to come in and meet with someone like Angela or a, 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 a qualified uh, mortgage specialist and get that profile. That'll at least give them the power to know what steps they need to take immediately if they have the uh, potential or what to do in the next, say, two or three years, what they can do with their student loans, how they might roll that into a refinancing and, and things of that nature to help them afford a house. Let's take another phone call from Paul in Harrisburg. Paul, you're on the air. Yes, uh, good morning. Good morning. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, home affordability for uh, me and my spouse. Um, I uh, finished college uh, with a lot of uh, cash in hand, uh, but my spouse uh, has a lot of student loan payments that have to be made. Uh, a lot of them are based on income, so uh, when we got married, uh, since it includes my income, we now have to pay more total. Um, we also, like uh, a lot of millennials, want a shorter-term loan. Uh, we don't want to be stuck somewhere for 20 years or 30 years. So. Uh, how does somebody in this type of position uh, look at what type of house they can afford uh, when they don't really know how uh, payments for the uh, pay plan will work moving forward with the new administration uh, as well as with a shorter term loan? Thank you very much for your call. Go ahead. Gary. Well, th so so even if you have a 30, 30 year loan, Paul, you can still there's no prepayment penalty for residential loans. So you're really not stuck in the in the uh, in the house. You can sell it after five years, 10 years, 20 years now. Uh, as Angela will tell you, you're, a lot of what you're paying in the beginning is is interest, but that is tax deductible against your ordinary income. So right now it is. It, it is right now, yeah, and and hopefully it'll stay. I mean, it is up to I think a couple million dollars, but yeah. uh, there are, there are there are some restrictions. But um, I I think that the and the previous caller asked the same question: Am I better off buying now something I can afford, or should I wait? and buy something that I really want in the future. And, and with real estate, which is an appreciating asset where you're also paying down the, the mortgage, you're better paying the bank and paying mid-pen than you are paying your landlord. So I, well, I always encourage you, if you that, can't afford to buy, buy something. Because that is something that, uh, you know, we heard a number of stories after the Great Recession uh, that there were very many millennials, and not just millennials, I mean older people too, who were downsizing, who decided to rent. Well, there's nothing, nothing wrong with rent. My, my wife's a landlord, so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys are making money all the time. Well, right? no, but I mean, there, there are people who should rent, and you, right. you definitely should rent before you buy, and you should get used to making a monthly payment, and, and there are people because of their transient who aren't going to move. But I, I'm just saying that it, you, uh, Central Pennsylvania is unique, and, and I did studies of this going back when I was in graduate school, of affordability. And there are some markets where it is cheaper to rent than it is to buy. And Harrisburg, there it was a ratio of one-to-one. One. Harrisburg, actually, Central Pennsylvania was a one-to-one, one, which meant it cost you the same amount per month to rent as it does to buy. And that's unique. I mean, Washington, D.C., it's flipped upside down. New York City is, you know, the, the same way. So you, you can't afford to buy a house in Washington, D.C., at the same rate that you can Or rent, rent. one either. Well, right. well or right. rent one right. either. Right. Yeah. But, but that affordability, we actually have a market where it's in balance because our rental rates are the same 
per square foot that you'd pay to own. Dan, I'm, I'm interested in something you mentioned, well, all of you have mentioned, uh, regulations. As home builders, you said that like 50% go to pay for regulatory reasons. 24% of the cost of 24%, the 24%, okay, what did I, where, where was I getting 50%? 50,000, I think, is oh, where okay. So you have a mix of my numbers up here. It's okay, we'll make it 50, it's a strong <laughs> argument. <laughs> yeah. All right, so what kind of regulations? And, you know, one thing I always have to remind people, you know, we know the new administration, the new president is talking about uh, regulations being taken away. Uh, we know that, uh, you know, this is a mantra of the sure. Republican Party is less regulation. But I always have to rem remind people is there was a reason those regulations were put in in the first place. But what kind of regulations are are a bit of a challenge for you? Well, they start, I'll work backwards, they'll start at the national level and work our way down. So at the federal level, uh, large um, regulatory schemes that don't necessarily aim themselves at development affect it dramatically. So, for instance, uh, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, big bills that we don't really think of as affecting my little house, yes, my little house, affect how you build. That works its way down through various fe federal schemes and then state regulatory schemes on how you can use land, where you can use land, when you can use land. And then the density schemes that comes up with both state and local municipalities, Greg talked about this earlier, if the municipality says you can only build a home on a five-acre lot, you're going to build a lot fewer homes, and the builder, in order to make a buck, has no choice really but to build a larger, more expensive home. So you're not adding a whole lot to the housing stock of the state, which already has some of the oldest housing stock in the country. So to the extent we are able to have more flexibility to offer the home buyer the different options so they can buy a small house, small lot, big house, big lot, whatever they can afford and whatever they prefer, we can work around that scheme better rather than being tied into kind of a, everybody has to choose the same choice based on the regulatory strings that, that bind us. Mm -hmm. So with the new administration, and I am curious what you all think, but uh, with the new administration, what do you see coming down that has an impact on buying houses, selling houses, building houses? Well, the, the stormwater management issues. I mean, the, the Hampton Township where I, where I live has a rain tax now where they're requiring that you pay a tax uh, for displacement of rainwater. Well, that came from Washington, D.C. and from the Obama administration. It, wasn't, it, was, it was an edict that came down, that was sent down to the states that ends up in the local municipalities. Stormwater management's the, the, the huge driving factor in development right now. And some of the, I mean, I think silly regulations is you have these stormwater ponds, and we have one development in Silver Spring Township right by the Conor de Gwinnett Creek. We have to put a fence around the stormwater pond which gets no water, but yet there's a creek, you know, 500 feet away that has no, you know, someone could fall into too. So, I mean, sometimes we go too far. A couple of years ago, Pennsylvania said, oh, if you build a new house, you have to put sprinklers in it. Well, it was going to cost the average house another $15,000 a year, and the homeowner may not have even wanted it. Well, I know builders were definitely against that. That was something yeah. that uh, that you lobbied against. Uh, but that was a, bureauc a bureaucrat's made that decision. There was never a law passed that said that had to be the case. So there are all kinds of regulations that we think have good intentions, and you know, sprinklers aren't a bad idea, but they raise the cost of a property, and the consumers should decide whether they want these yeah, things. Yeah, I, I just want to pick up on that. Builders were never opposed to sprinklers. We were opposed to mandatory sprinklers. So if the consumer wants to pay the extra cost and can afford it, dynamite, go right ahead. But the problem was at 15 grand or whatever the price might be per individual house, you're pricing an enormous number of people out of a new home. Mm -hmm. Let's take a phone call from Dennis in Lancaster. Dennis, you're on the air. 
Claude. Hi. Um, yes, this is Dennis. Uh, I'm a mortgage banker here, and I was a comment earlier about some options. I wanted to mention one and then just briefly introduce another one, you know, to, to be a huge issue for Pennsylvania. But the option, you know, I talked about FHA only needing 3.5% down. You, I see more and more people going for USDA loans, which most of the, you know, uh, which basically you can do without bringing any cash to the table. And uh, I don't know what the other folks are seeing there, but that is certainly an option for people. And the other op- the other thing I wanted to mention, which is really not largely discussed, but most of the housing wealth in the United States is tied up with people over 65. And Pennsylvania is aging faster than any other state. So people... Uh, in that range, they basically take cash when they make a move. So there's, so that more people haven't sold their house because it was worth two hundred thousand ten years ago, and now it's only worth one seventy five. And since they really need that cash, it's like a pent up demand, and the housing value is going up. They mentioned eight point two percent, and whatever. Uh, you're going to see people making moves and and whatever. And then, as it relates to that. Uh, uh, presenting options to people, one of the things that happens is, which is a federal program that helps seniors, is most seniors pay cash when they make a move. Some of them take a mortgage that they don't have to pay into their 90s. And the third option is a reverse mortgage purchase, which you can put down about half or even 40% or 30-some percent, and then you don't have a payment. But this option is hardly ever presented by the builders or the lenders or whatever. It's highly underutilized. So, uh, but it would affect Pennsylvania going forward because Pennsylvania Department of Aging said last summer under five-year report that people have to age in their own home. Hey, listen, so, I got I to run, but uh, thank you very much for the information. Agreed? Scott, if I can go back to what Paul's call was a couple back where he was saying, you know, my wife has debt, I have debt, how do we know how to best apply? Just wanted to circle back for that because I think it's very important. I get a lot of these questions. When you come in and you meet with a mortgage lender, we're going to start the best way you would want it, both of you on the loan together, both being, you know, going to be applying with your own credit. We can work backwards from that. If his income is so that he's able to um, uh, get approved for the loan on his own, and his wife may not be the best fit to be on the loan because she doesn't have enough income to offset all that student loan debt. So when you're applying for a loan, you kind of work backwards and see, can you do it together? Is it best if just one does it more than the other? They can still have ownership rights on the home. They just simply aren't using their credit to be able to, to obtain the loan. So I think that's an answer for him and him saying about student debt, not knowing what it's going to be. There are all kinds of mortgage rules that tell us how we have to calculate those payments if they're not being cal- currently uh, calculated on your credit report. Um, depending on if it's USDA, FHA, VA, conventional, all of them have different ways of looking at it. So if they are reporting based on the income, we can use that number. If not, the the ratio or the calculations that we have to use are anywhere between one and five percent of what that student balance is, and it just is you know is loan specific there. We have a, several questions, the emails, but we're not going to have time to get to them. And if if I could, we'll put them on our website. If uh, one or two or three or four of you could take a look and maybe uh, provide an answer to uh, those who have emailed in, I'd appreciate it. Okay. I want to thank all three of you, all four of you, for being with us today. Scott, it was a pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
The Pennsylvania General Assembly is back in session, and it was an eventful week at the state capitol. WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief Katie Myers with us for a semi-regular feature here on WITF Smart Talk Capital Week in Review. Katie, welcome to the program. Thanks, Scott. It was, uh, you know, it is an eventful week, but a lot of it didn't have to do with the legislature being back in session. It just seems that uh, more occurs when they are. But one of the big stories this week, and it is something that uh, we'll get a lot of attention over the next few weeks because uh, Governor Tom Wolf will be making his budget proposal for the fiscal year 2017-18 on February 7th, which is about uh, two weeks away. And uh, the independent fiscal office, Matthew Niddle, uh, came out with some news this week, not real good news. How about the figures? What did he have to say? Sure. So I will start at this time of the year. Everything seems to come back to the budget. Everything's right. pointing towards the budget. So we just got our brand new updated um, numbers for the Pennsylvania economy and for the structural deficit and our shortfall for this year for the state. And what that is, it's it's based on economic performance and returns from sales taxes and other things. And what it showed was, last one was in November. We are down since November. Um, this was a little bit unexpected for them because they had had good growth through November, so maybe they thought you know, the weakness was over, but no. So our structural deficit is now up from um, high 500 millions to 716 million, and that's for this year. That is for this fiscal yes. year, meaning that we will not have. What is the, the number? 700? 716 million. So that's 716 million below the number that the legislature proposed in their budget at the beginning in this, this summer when they started. Okay. So what about next year? When I say next year, remember, we're talking about uh, July 1st, starting July 1st with the new fiscal year. Right. So this is our underlying structural deficit that's this year and, and next year. And that is up to uh, $3.8 billion. So our $2.8 billion, I'm sorry. So uh, about $3 billion. All right. So Matthew, Matthew Niddle, the uh, director of the Independent uh, Fiscal Office here in Pennsylvania, you talked with him, and uh, one of the questions that was asked is, you know, where our shortfall, why we have a shortfall, mm -hmm. what money isn't coming in? It's really broad-based. It's hitting uh, all uh, individuals, uh, businesses, um, uh, investment income. It's all weaker than we had projected. Do we know why? Um, it's, you know, economic weakness. What the two big factors in this are just bad returns. The big one is sales tax. Um, those returns have been very low and corporate income tax. But as he said, it's sort of everywhere, just broad based weakness. And they don't really know where exactly it's coming from. See, you know, that's kind of ironic because we just spent 40 minutes talking about uh, a healthy economy and sure. people are buying houses, starting to build houses. Uh, and that only occurs once an economy is healthy. Most of the, the economic news that we have heard, nationally anyway, uh, has been positive for the most part. For the first time in years, recovering from this recession, uh, incomes went up. D just to report today that Pennsylvania's unemployment rate went down to 5.4%, which is still above the national average, but still went down a little bit. So this kind of goes against it. This would say, it seem to say, especially when you're talking about less sales tax revenue coming in, that the economy in Pennsylvania is not as healthy as we thought. No, and I think it does speak to the fact that throughout the entire economic recovery since you know the housing market first crashed, we've seen 
progress, slow but very uneven progress. And so this particular month was bad, not just for Pennsylvania, for a lot of states. So we're not a huge outlier in that. But, um, yeah, it's just they don't really know exactly where it's coming from. And that's what's frustrating, I think, to the legislature and to the people who track these things. All right. Now, what you just said, where it's coming from, meaning the deficit. Right. Now, the next big question is, where does the money come from to make up for those deficits? That's the big question. And we're going to find out what uh, Governor Tom Wolf's idea is in two weeks. But we do know a few things about what they plan on doing. And I think as we've said on here before, uh, the GOP um, has majorities in the House and Senate, and they have said very strongly that they do not want to raise broad-based taxes, so sales tax and income tax. Don't want to raise them. Um, they've been very oppositional to like a shale tax, that kind of thing as well, which Governor Tom Wolf, again, has pushed uh, you know, in his past two budgets. This is his third one. Now he says he's not going to push for a broad-based tax increase. Um, a lot of skepticism about whether or not they're going to be able to fill that over $700 million budget hole without broad-based tax increases. But they've talked a lot about uh, restructuring government and um, consolidating. And that really brings us into a couple of the big events that happened this week. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, the first one, and that is uh, prisons. It was announced as a bit of a surprise uh, just two weeks ago that the administration had planned to close two state prisons uh, in, in order to save. That was one of the reasons, mm. in order to save money right. because Pennsylvania is facing such a challenge with its budget. Uh, reason given that, that we were able to do this is because the shrinking uh, inmate population and, you know, some of these were prisons were old. Well, the announcement was made yesterday, and instead of two being closed, the administration announced that it would close the state's oldest prison, the state prison at Pittsburgh. Talk about that. So, yeah, so this announcement, it, it did come as a surprise to us and to a lot of the lawmakers when it was made just after the new year. Um, and there was a lot of opposition. They had basically what the state said is we're going to close two of five prisons. We have five on the docket, and they ranged around Pennsylvania. You had uh, three in northeast PA, you had Pittsburgh out west, some in the middle. And um, they said, we're going to close two of them, and it's going to save us around $91 million. It's because our prison population is going down, and we have this budget deficit. And now, I will say, our prison system is not empty right now. It's still very full. They kind of It's above 100% occupancy. It is above 100% intended occupancy. They do have empty beds, but that's known as emergency capacity. So if something happens and they have to like close down a prison, there are beds in the system, but it'll be tight. Um, and so this was, you know, the narrative for the last couple of weeks. We had a lot of lawmakers speaking out, a lot of prison guard and worker advocacy groups speaking out against closing them down because these prisons for a lot of these smaller areas, especially in the Northeast, um, they're big economy drivers. They employ a lot of people. So you had a lot of pushback about closing two prisons with relatively little notice. Politics became a big part of this, though. It did. Uh, because, just as you said, the, these prisons in some of the rural areas are economic drivers. I mean, yeah, some, in some cases, uh, maybe the biggest employer in a county or one of the biggest employers in a county. Um, you spoke with uh, a Democratic senator, uh, Wayne Fontana. Uh, who, you know, it sounded very much like uh, he was trying to protect his, his turf, that pr Pittsburgh State Prison is located in his district. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he questioned why uh, that 
particular person was was questioned. What did he have to say to you? Yes. So Senator Fontana, he's again, he's a Democratic senator, and that's a Democratic portion of the county there uh, in Pittsburgh. And he essentially was kind of wondering, and I think he knows that this is not the full reason, and there's lots of reasons that were going into this, but he is a Democrat. Maybe this was a less politically dangerous, politically risky move for Tom Wolf to close a prison in an area where he has relative support and where, I mean, Democrats generally, more than Republicans, tend to be pro-lowering prison populations. I think a lot of lawmakers are, but they seem to be more amenable to it. And uh, so it it's possible that this was a less politically risky move, but we don't necessarily know what Tom Wolf was thinking in making this decision or the DOC, the Department of Corrections. But one thing that Senator Fontana said to you, uh, and I, I found this interesting, because one of the concerns was that uh, there would be people who would lose jobs, uh, mm-hmm. CEOs, um, uh, corrections officers, people who were working in the prison. Uh, Senator Fontana said to you that if we close this prison, that the great majority of the money is made up in salaries. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, the Wolf administration said that uh, these uh, prison workers would be given the opportunity to transfer to another facility, that uh, they didn't see a great loss in jobs if people wanted to go. But the point that Senator Fontana is making is, you know, you keep those jobs. What are you really saving? Right. And what the Wolf administration and the Department of Corrections have said is that this money and I'll say this is going to be eighty one million dollars that they're earmarking to be saved by closing Pittsburgh. And we don't know if that's going to be this fiscal year or next fiscal year or a little bit of both. But they've said that money is going to be saved in facility costs. So the costs to actually run the prison. And it's and it's a large facility and it's an old facility. And that takes a lot to run. But Senator Fontana was skeptical that if you keep all these employees on, you know, $81 million is quite a lot in facility costs for a year. Mm. I want to move on to a third story. And this was uh, Pennsylvania's now former Secretary of Drug and Alcohol Programs, Gary Tennis. He was fired this week by uh, Governor Wolf. And, um, you know, there was a story that came out in Reading Eagle, uh, you know, about some hiring practices. And a lot of people assume that's what, what this was about. Uh, Gary Tennis took an unusual step, called a press conference. He said that's not what it is about, that he was not on board with the Wolf administration making some changes in the department. Uh, He said, uh, and have a bite here, a sound clip of Gary Tennis talking about that. He said, well, you aren't willing to support what I want to do here. I think we do have to have a parting of ways. All right. So, uh, you know, Gary Tennis has, has been a guest on this program many times. and I think he was a, a, he was a really good guest, really knows the stuff. And I think he did a lot for this state. But actually, him being fired is not the big story here. What he's talking about with Governor Wolf uh, maybe consolidating or changing the Department of Drug and Alcohol Programs is. Right. I have about a minute, Katie. All right. So I'll make it quick. Uh, yes. So Governor Tom Wolf, um, and this is still um, not a public decision yet, but um, Gary Tennis says that the Wolf administration wants to consolidate the Department of Drug and Alcohol Programs and make it back. It's a state agency now. They want to turn it into a bureau and consolidate it into Health and Human Services. And Gary Tennis is of the opinion that that will be devastating to um, fighting the opioid crisis, which is what this um, department, this bureau, or this department's main 
MO has been recently. What's the, what's the difference between a bureau and a department? So a bureau, um, it's not an independent state agency. So it's part of a larger agency. And that gives the head of that bureau a lot less power. And it gives them less sway to set an agenda. So Tennis is, you know, his idea was like, well, I'm not going to be able to meet with like police commissioners. And I'm not going to be able to push these people to carry naloxone, which has been a huge driver in um, preventing opioid overdoses. And he says he's just not going to have the sway he wants, the sway he feels he needs. Needs in within the administration. Katie Meyer is WITF's uh, Capitol Bureau Chief. Katie, thank you very much for the insight. Thank you, Scott. Coming up on uh, Monday's show, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, opioids again. Uh, obviously, a big topic, and uh, naloxone in particular. That's coming up on Monday's show.